Hello, this is Tom McSweeney, and you're very welcome to my Maritime Ireland programme and podcast, where we discuss and report on Ireland's maritime history, culture and development, our relationship with the sea that surrounds this island nation. On this, our 12th edition, we'll be analysing whether marine scientists, for all the extensive and dedicated research they carry out, are getting the maritime message across to the general public. The chief executive of the state research agency, the Marine Institute, Paul Connolly, has a definite view. We have to get into a space where we put the complexity aside and move to simplicity, explain what we're doing very simply. Why are we doing it? Here are the outputs, and here are the benefits of that output to policy, people, and planet. The man who's leading the European Commission's research on the oceans, Dr John Bell, has this opinion. Science is a lighthouse now, not an ivory tower, and the lighthouse is turning the lights on in the ocean. We know more about the moon than we know about the ocean floor, and it's the main life support system that we have. We'll talk to the master of a fisheries patrol vessel about inspecting trawlers, not an easy job. And to this man who's going to write the history of Cork's traditional boat organisation. Jasper Wynne, travel writer and author, lives afloat. I bought a 23-foot, 50-year-old plastic boat, a pageant, a westerly pageant, in the south coast of England, and I would have left a couple of months later after buying it in January of 2020 to go to the Baltic and then into Eastern Europe, including Ukraine, and out into the Black Sea, and then down through the Mediterranean, and finally to Spain. We'll also hear from the Executive Director of the European Fisheries Control Agency and the Executive Chairman of the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority. There is a huge amount of research being done in Irish waters. Marine scientists are busy on so many tasks that it's at times hard to keep abreast of all of it, as it is of the regular conferences where the results are distilled. But are the scientists getting their message across to the general public? That I wonder about. The most recent conference was the European Commission's launch of its Charter to Restore Oceans and Waters, the Horizon Mission Europe programme. A well-attended two-day event at the National Maritime College in Ringeskiddy, Cork Harbour. I asked the Chief Executive of the Marine Institute, Paul Connolly, Ireland's State Research Agency, is scientific research conveying its message effectively to the public? We are doing an enormous amount of science. We are collecting an enormous amount of data. We're doing really good research, but we're not explaining the outputs of that research to society to give them comfort that we are addressing the challenges and we need to up our game in that community. Explain the outputs of your research and how it impacts on solving the solutions that are keeping people awake at night. Climate change, the impact of the ocean, why are there extreme ocean events, extreme weather events, the ocean is causing this, we're doing research that can help explain but we're not explaining. You said that for the strategic plan for the next four years, that's going to be a concentration, getting the message out? One of the key 
priorities we're going to have is to look at the research we're doing, what are the outputs of that research, and explain that output. When the new ship came in, the Tom Crean, and we had it open to the public, and we were explaining the science that goes on, they were absolutely amazed. They had no idea this was going on. So we need to step back and say, we need to explain this. We need to get them more on side. And the point that was made in there about the news media focusing on poor, negative uh, stories, we need to be sort of coming back from that and talking about the positive things that are happening, the good news stories, and get away from this, you know, bad, bad red stuff. Um, and I think we have the potential to explain we're doing so much and we have the answers. We're not going to get it all together, but we need to bring society with us. And you've heard that in there from the Commission, that engaging with society and bringing society with the science is fundamental to the mission. And that's what we're going to do in our new strategic plan. There are two aspects, obviously. The media is not great at covering the maritime sphere, no, no. as I know myself. But academia and scientists don't often put it across in the language people can understand. I totally agree with you. And, you know, I have the same. Give me a briefing note on X. As a CEO, I have to ask for the briefing note. And I get so much explaining the science. And the more complex they make it, the better they feel. And I'm saying we have to get into a space where we put the complexity aside and move to simplicity. Explain what we're doing very simply. Why are we doing it? Here are the outputs and here are the benefits of that output to policy, people and planet. Paul Connolly, CEO of the Marine Institute. President Higgins attended the event. There were ambassadors and special representatives from several countries, marine agencies, commercial organisations. The fishing industry was there also, as were non-governmental environment organisations. An interesting conference. But again, how much gets from the specialists to the public? The man who's leading the European Commission's research on oceans and the European Green Deal comes from Dublin. He's Dr John Bell. It's Healthy Planet Director. He grew up off the South Circular Road. This conference is a landmark conference in that what we're trying to do here is people will have seen the news from Sharm el-Sheikh and all the rest and there's a lot of people thinking nothing is being done and nobody's got this. In fact, from the European Green Deal, which is the programme, the policy, if you like, where the European Union aims to become a climate-neutral continent working within its environmental boundaries in a fair and just way by 2050, the task of the European Union for the next 30 years is to make peace with nature. How are we going to do that? So what we've got under the Green Deal are what are called missions. And this mission, which is to try and work to restore our oceans and rivers and waters by 2030, needs the people who live and work and do research and innovation around those places to meet and work with us and say, this is what we want to do. So this is called a lighthouse, the Atlantic Arctic Lighthouse. It's a bit like an Irish, you used to have the metal where people need to bring in the crops and everybody would get together to do it um, or to build a barn. It's the same idea except on a bigger scale. So around the Atlantic Arctic 
sea basin, so Ireland, Portugal, Norway, Spain, France, we're using science and innovation to convene people to say, here's what we want to do. You can have access to the science and the innovation. Now, how do you want to work bottom-up and make it happen? And this meeting in Cork, when Cork uh, City and Council, who gave a really very impressive understanding of the role of the port uh, city of Cork and the city of Cork and the county of Cork, as an outward-facing Atlantic world. Remember, Ireland is an ocean nation. It is one of the largest member states by size with the ocean uh, economic zone that we have. And Cork has signed up to this saying, we want to be part of steering. How are we going to make this transition happen? How do we involve people in Cork in terms of dealing with things like, okay, there's the positive things like the blue energy that will come from here. You see the institute here, the Maritime Institute here, is a leading institute in, in science and research around Europe. How are we going to do with the more difficult things like sea level rise? How are we going to actually restore coastal uh, um, habitats? How do we work with fisheries communities? People from Bantry who are here talking about how fisheries communities are working, learning again how to restore nature to get it to work for you. We had people from the Aran Islands here talking about out on the islands, how the island communities also want to become autonomous and sustainable and not dependent on energy coming from the mainland and so forth. So it was a, it was a major convening moment and Cork has shown that it can be a capital in the ocean. The speech is coming across. There was a message, and that is trying to get the information out to the public. There seem to me to be two aspects there. One, the media, it has to be said, isn't great in conveying it where the ocean and the marine is concerned. But also, academia and scientists don't often speak in the language that the ordinary people, if I may use that term, understand. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a dual problem, isn't there? Conveying it, yes. even though a lot of effort and a lot of money, a lot of budget is being put into events and the attendance was quite uh, impressive. Well, here's the strange thing is because of the time that we're in where we have to make this great transition by design, Science can't be sitting outside the conversation as an observer, it has to set direction. And to set direction you have to have a conversation, explain and listen and use a different language. And science now, because we know what is happening and what needs to happen, it has to give courage to politics. These are difficult conversations. It has to give space to innovators saying, look, if we want to do this, we need this kind of energy in the sea, so you know, come up with solutions. It has to give hope to citizens. If you're a young person out there, it can look pretty dark. And you come to a conference like this and you see, we've got it. There's people working everywhere to change things. Um, and it has to give respite to nature. So science is no longer, it's a lighthouse now, not an ivory tower. And the lighthouse is turning the lights on in the ocean. We know more about the moon than we know about the ocean floor. And it's the main life support system that we have. So this event is... It's part of a pattern that you're saying there's a lot of people, they may not speak scientific language, but my God, are they out working there to do it. And citizen science is, a, is another really important part of this, people being involved in the observation. You don't just need submarines to observe what's happening in nature and so forth. So I think people are actually ahead of science in this area, but as you say, there needs to be a new way of talking and of making the, making the language authoritative, legitimate and understandable and usable from the point of view of the user. So there you are, scientists, marine research, and how it's conveyed to the public. At the conference, Cork became the first city to sign up to the European Commission's charter to restore oceans and waters. It was signed on behalf of the city by Lord Mayor Deirdre Ford. A number of environmental, non-governmental organisations and networks also signed up. Now let's change the topic. 
Up on the River Boyle in County Roscommon, Tom Lewis and his wife Lynn are living aboard their barge, the Vent du Nord. Born in Belfast, Tom only returned to live in Ireland during the past couple of years, having had his home in the Canadian Rocky Mountains for 30 years, following a career in Royal Navy diesel submarines. He's been singing all his life, the last 35 years as a full-time touring folk singer, and he's still singing. What else for Maritime Ireland but a shanty? Sea shanties were melodic tools invented by sailors to encourage, engage and coordinate the many and varied labours needed to work ships driven solely by the power of the wind. But this is a shanty for singing. On a ship under sail in a breeze or a gale There was hard work for sailors to do So they shouted and bawled as they heaved and they hauled Sometimes only six hands in the crew For the sailors had songs just to help work along At capstan and windlass and line Whether hoisting the main yard or hauling the halyard The shantyman kept them in time but this is a shanty for singing Add your voice, get the rafters a-ringing You all know what to do, harmonise with your crew This is a shanty for singing There are hymns in the kirk, there are shanties for work There are songs for each rhyme and each reason There are love songs in trancing and pop songs for dancing And carols when they are in season With the sun on your neck or green water on deck There was always a job to be done But here in the pub with fine ale and good grub The singing is part of the fun So this is a shanty for singing Add your voice, get the rafters a-ringing You all know what to do, harmonise with your crew This is a shanty for singing Sing a shanty for pumps when you're down in the dumps Short drag when you've not got much time A stamp and go serves if you're just a bit nervous A four-bitter doesn't need to rhyme Or scan When the room starts to sway or you're drifting away You surely have too much drink taken If the girl of your fancy says her name is Nancy She'll probably leave you forsaken Now this is a shanty for singing Add your voice, get the rafters a-ringing You all know what to do, harmonise with your crew This is a shanty for singing There's no man and no maid who should ever be afraid Of singing at toil or at leisure For at work or at play every sailor will say That singing is always a pleasure At the bar of a capstan or bar of a pub Raise your voice, let the melody fly Every girl, every boy, don't be shy, don't be coy Whenever the chorus comes by This is a shanty for singing Add your voice, get the rafters a-ringing You all know what to do, harmonise with your crew This is a shanty for singing Yes, this is a shanty for singing Add your voice, get the rafters a-ringing You all know what to do, harmonise with your crew This is a shanty for singing 
is a shanty for singing, and your voice get the rafters a ringing. You all know what to do. Harmonize with your crew. This is a shanty for singing. Wow. That was fast and raised my spirits, and I hope yours, perhaps particularly as Christmas time approaches. Thanks to Tom Lewis and his crew, and that shanty can be bought on his website, tomlewis.net, that's tomlewis.net, where it's raising funds for the charity Gavi to improve access to new and underused vaccines for children living in the world's poorest countries. Anton O'Callaghan here with the monthly roundup of Maritime News. A team of scientists, led by experts from the School of Natural Sciences at University of Galway, have discovered an exceptionally well-preserved group of fossil sea urchins at Hookhead, County Wexford. The find is regarded as one of the most important in Irish paleontology in recent times and is being described as a dramatic moment now frozen in time on the rock surface of the southeast coast. Sea urchins are a group of marine animals related to starfish. They have globular-plated bodies covered by numerous defensive spines, which fall away and are quickly lost after the urchin dies. Over 200 complete fossilised sea urchins are preserved in exquisite detail on a limestone surface in an area of just over a metre. All of the hookhead specimens have their spines still attached, and they apparently died together on the seafloor almost 350 million years ago. The Hookhead site is now protected under law. Approval for the recovery was granted by several state agencies, as well as the landowner. The scientific team removed the fossil-bearing slab to the National Museum of Ireland for conservation and further study. The find has considerable potential to reveal important information about the nature of seafloor communities during the Carboniferous time period, which was, just imagine this, a time which occurred long before the dinosaurs ever walked on land. Quite an astonishing find, about which there are full details published in the Irish Journal of Earth Sciences, which is available online. The annual report of the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority for last year says that there were 47,000 landings of fish at Irish ports, which were valued at a total of €435 million. Non-Irish landings rose, and there were 1,345 inspections of fishing vessels in Irish waters, national and non-national. There were 95 specific investigations following these inspections, and 66 case files for possible prosecution were initiated. The SFPA says that there is a low level of non-compliance with regulators, which the authority's executive chairman, Pascal Hayes, says indicates that Ireland has a strong reputation for compliance with fisheries law. Shannon Foyne's port is to get its rail line back. This is through the reopening of the Foynes-Limerick rail line as a freight service to the Shannon Estuary port. The line originally opened in 1858 for passenger services, 
were closed in 1963. Clearing of vegetation along the 42-kilometre track has started, with construction work on the line to follow. New rail track has been delivered by sea to Foynes. Level crossings and rehabilitation of bridges and culverts will be needed. The reopening decision, which has been called for over many years, follows the launching of Shannon Foynes Port Company's master plan to transform the port into a hub for the production of wind turbines and a location for production and transport of green energies like hydrogen and ammonia. The RNLI has a new inland lifeboat station. This is now fully operational at Enniskillen on Lower Loch Erne. The lifeboat there has been housed in temporary accommodation for 21 years. The new state-of-the-art building is close to the edge of the lock for launching of the inshore lifeboat. The station team is looking for new volunteers to join the crew in several roles, including lifeboat crew, shore crew, deputy launching authorities and fundraisers. Ireland's fishing fleet is to become smaller because of Brexit. The owners of 57 Irish vessels are accepting decommissioning, which is an EU-funded scheme to get them out of the industry. The government failed to get a deal in the Brexit negotiations sufficient to protect the fleet and has supported the scheme to get fishermen to leave the industry. The State Fisheries Board, BIM, has confirmed that 57 boats are to go from the national fleet. 11 of the boats leaving are vessels less than 18 metres in length. 31 are bigger. There is one beam trawler over 24 metres. This is expected to create job losses in coastal communities. The industry blames the government for failure to protect the Irish fleet. Other EU nations fishing in Irish waters may benefit because their quotas were not reduced as heavily as Ireland's in the Brexit negotiations. The National Sailing Association, Irish Sailing, has told Galway County Council that proposed bylaws to ban water sports from the county's beaches are misleading. The association says the bylaws are misleading and that, while it understands, the council's intention is not to prohibit or unnecessarily restrict water sports activity. However, the bylaws, as drafted, suggests otherwise. Lifeboat crews from Loch Swilly and Aaron Moore in County Donegal, along with Port Rush in County Antrim, have received awards from the RNLI. These are for a rescue which kept the crews at sea for several hours in Force 11 conditions. The actions of the crews that night were outstanding and saved the lives of five people on board a fishing vessel that was in serious trouble, says the RNLI commendation of those crews. Mercury levels of fish and shellfish landed by fishing boats at Irish ports are low and well within EU guidelines for human consumption. That's according to a briefing from UCD's Institute of Food and Health. The scientific experts say that the general population need not fear any fish products as part of a healthy, balanced diet. And to conclude with this month, the mystery of skulls removed from Inishboffin Island in 1890. Thirteen skulls were removed, according to reports, by British anthropologist Alfred Cort Haddon, who presented them to Trinity College in Dublin for its anthropological museum. Inishboffin Heritage Museum has asked TCD for their return. Meetings have been held between the museum and the university, but the matter has not so far been resolved. Maynooth University has also become involved, and so has RTE, in this issue of Victorian Irish Crania. There is some uncertainty reported about where the skulls actually are, but this headhunting 
is continuing, about which we will bring you more when we hear it, hopefully in the new year ahead. And that's the News Roundup for this month. Antonio Callahan reporting. You're listening to Maritime Ireland, reporting on this island's nation relationship with the sea that surrounds us. The Lundy Sentinel is a 61-metre inspection vessel of the European Fisheries Control Agency. I went aboard when she visited Cork Port to mark World Fisheries Day. Alistair Hamilton is the master, and aboard I was shown photographs and video of inspecting fishing vessels in several parts of the world. Not an easy job, and particularly in some pretty rough conditions that were shown, when fisheries inspectors had to be transferred from the Lundy Sentinel to board a fishing vessel. The guys, obviously, they want to do the job, and it's basically my I'm responsible for the safety of everyone on board. And I have to call and say, look, no, we can't do it. And uh, sometimes they, they get a bit frustrated because it's, uh, they want to do the job. They're only on here for two, two weeks and, you know, they're, they're keen to work. But you just, uh, we have a coxswain, the coxswain of the fast boat. He is an ex-fisherman himself and uh, he's very aware of the dangers of, well, you've seen the weather. If you've got a fishing boat rolling and pitching, an FRC coming alongside, moving as well, and trying to get the inspectors up a pilot ladder. It's, it's very tricky. And um, if the weather is, is not good, you can't do it. Simple as that. You can't do it. So we... And you need a very strong stomach. <laughs> well, usually for the first two, three days, there are quite a few people who remain in their bunks. <laughs> but they get used to it. They get used to it. You've been... North African waters, Mediterranean waters, yes. Irish waters yes. you're visiting. Yes. What would you notice in the differences between fishermen? It's interesting. Uh, well, we've had nuts and bolts thrown at us by Tunisian fishermen. <laughs> I don't think we'd get that in Ireland. <laughs> but uh, after that, they put a Tunisian inspection team on board and it was that they didn't cause any more problems after that. But, uh, yeah, the other ones, um, yeah, I think all fishermen are different. But and the other, they're all make, trying to make a living. They're all trying to make a living. And um, we're looked on probably as, well, we are the, are the, yeah, are the basically the Uber drivers. We go where the, where, the fishermen, where the fishery inspectors want us to go. We just drive the vessel. We don't have anything actually to do with the fishing inspections. Uh, so they, they look on the, us as a, a, a police patrol car. So, uh, and they're, yeah, they're, some are cooperative and some are not. There's no question of that. You strike me as a man who enjoys, has enjoyed, probably will enjoy being at sea. I've, yeah, I, I, I was a late, very late starter at sea. Uh, I didn't go to sea till I was 37 years old, but um, that's almost 30 years ago now. But um, it, yeah, it is 31 years ago. But yeah, so but I, yeah, I've always been keen on sailing. I, I have to say, but uh, so yeah, I, I do like the sea. Uh, I'm not so keen now on bad weather. I have to say, <laughs> I, I, I'm a fair weather sailor, really. But uh, yeah, it, it, this this particular job 
is is quite challenging if the weather is bad because you've got to weigh up what you have to do as the job and you know and it's got to be safety safety first always and I'm as I say I'm responsible for everyone's safety and if I if something happens it's it's my you know I'm my my I'm I'm the fall guy you know so it's uh, I've got to, you've got to be quite tough you've got to say look we're not doing it today and finally you're planning a voyage yourself yes, around Ireland yes, on yeah, a sailing that's vessel. That's right. I, I have a sailing vessel with my son, and uh, we certainly are planning to do a circumnavigation of Ireland. Yeah. Alistair Hamilton, master of the European Fisheries Control Agency inspection vessel Lundy Sentinel, talking to me on the deck of the ship. Sailing around Ireland should be quite a difference to some of what you heard there about his experiences. And now to another man and his boat. Metal Morrow was founded in Cork in 1993. At its base on Crosses Green, where the River Lee passes by towards Southgate Bridge in one of the several tributaries which bisect the city centre, the Workers of the Sea, as the community boatyard describes itself, promotes and fosters maritime culture and traditional boats. It has commissioned Jasper Wynne, travel writer and author, who has lived with nomadic Berbers, canoed along the Danube, broadcast travel and history programmes, to write an immersive book about its history. What is an immersive book, I asked him. An immersive book? Um, well, I'm, I'm learning all these new wonderful expressions from Metal Myra themselves. So um, I'm the writer in motion, and I think by immersive, we mean that I'm going to, I'm immersed in the history and the current state of Metal Myra and what they're doing, what they're achieving. So I'm, we've called it the whim, the writer in residence, which is actually a writer in motion. And I'm joining in with everything, talking to people and following where um, my researches take me, but where people lead me. So I've been joining in a lot with, I, I uh, rode in the Ocean to City race to find about that aspect of um, uh, Navoga Corky. Uh, then I've been in the workshops where so many of the, uh, of the projects are going on, community projects, which is something I'm very interested in. Uh, I've been delving into the history of skin boats because the Irish skin boat is, uh, one, unique, but also part of a, of a very long and global history of umiaks and kayaks and kayaks and all, all these skin boats around the world. And then I've also been talking to people who have the oral history of the organization and of skin boats and boat building. So I'm the one who's being immersed in the project and I'm bringing to it... Um, well. The fantastic thing is I'm actually finding how many things I didn't know I knew about to do with the River Lee, because that's where we're based, uh, on Metal Myra, um, about skin boats, about currucks, um, about people involved, uh, how I was in touch with Donald Lynch, who was one of the founders of Metal Myra. Um, way before I knew about Metal Myra, we were in touch something randomly uh, about um, something he'd seen I'd written in a newspaper and he got on to me. And I, I got to learn the Donald Lynch um, uh, modus operandi because he just 
said, right, I'm going to ask you about this. I'm going to ask you to do this. And the next minute I was doing talks for him. And uh, we were, um, he, he was providing boats for some contacts of mine. I just realized what a force of nature he was. But also how that was part of Metal Mara's um, format. How, why, as such a diverse organization, they're not only going strong um, after, gosh, is it 93? So they're doing the maths here pushing 30 years. That's unique for an organization. It is, and it's a fascinating thing that despite the fact that it's Cork-based and Cork-organized, it has got a, a reputation nationally and internationally. It is. Um, and that's what I'm discovering. I mean, the, the internationally bit is more and more people are uh, not not within Metal Myra, but people from outside uh, are saying, oh, you know, have you met the guys who um, have Nouveau-Xan in Barcelona or in Germany or I just heard today there are quite a few clubs over in the States but they all seem to have some connection with Metal Mara. Metal Mara seems to be in the seed and I know there are other um, traditional boat organizations and skin boat organizations around Ireland and they've all got their own strengths and they come together for, for regattas and so on and so forth but Metal Mara has something unique and that's what I'm interested in exploring for the book and so the end result of this um, very brave project for Metal Myra, because they didn't give me a brief, they didn't say, you know, on the 15th of April you'll deliver a, a manuscript and it will do this, this and this. They said, come and see what we do. Um, you know, join in. See where it takes us. And at the end we'll have the book that, that, that's there that we don't know is there yet. And where it takes us is likely to the next generation that can continue Metal Mara, isn't it? Well, I think that's the exciting thing about Metal Mara is that um, I've, look, I've been around some traditional boat organisations in, in England and in Ireland um, and it's difficult to get young people involved. You know, they're time-consuming, um, the cold, wet and uncomfortable. The last two years have been difficult, obviously, for people. Um, and... Metal Myra seemed to be addressing this. Well, it was really good today to see uh, people who'd used the uh, access through Metal Myra to gain certificates in, in boat handling and um, in, in, uh, who had gained access to the waters, who were looking to those to take them forward into either the leisure industry or perhaps with Metal Myra or as coaches or whatever. And that, I think, is the community spirit of Metal Myra. It, I, I referred to it tonight as a radical organization and it is radical it's managed to hold on to um it's, it's managed to maybe not hold on to something it hasn't got corporated is that a word it is now it hasn't become a corporate entity turned for profit um focused on one aim it seems to enjoy and tolerate its diversity and that's a wonderful thing and finally you're going to get all of this done despite of all your other activities. How are you getting on with your own boat, your long boat that you've been using for what, how many years are you in that? Well, I've been living aboard my own boat. I, all this came about because of these very weird and strange and, and for some people tragic, for other people just disconcerting um, last few years. I bought a 23-foot, 50-year-old plastic boat, a pageant, a westerly pageant, uh, in the south coast of England and I would have left a couple of months later after buying it in January of 2020 to go to the Baltic 
and then into Eastern Europe, including Ukraine, and out into the Black Sea, and then down through the Mediterranean, and finally to Spain. And it was a project for a book called The Long Wrong Way. And it was going to be one of those sort of light-hearted travel books where somebody who doesn't know a lot about sailing heads off on a boat and muddles along. But it was also going to follow trade routes, the Viking trade routes. It was going to look at the Amber trade, the Hanseatic, Hanseatic League, um, Irish missionaries. Anyway, uh, March, the whole thing was in lockdown. So I've been living aboard a very small boat for the last two years and loving it. Um, been off-grid the whole time, at anchor. And so when I got this... Um, this uh, invitation to become the writer in motion. It's just another part of the incredible serendipity that seems to go with Metal Mara. It caught me at the right time. Uh, it, it felt uh, all the connections suddenly came up that I did know Donal. I wasn't just a random uh, pick, that I was very free, very incredibly free, because I had two years that a project that wasn't going to happen until whenever it happens. And so to be able to come home, back to Ireland, to bring my own boat back, which will be the next thing I do, first window of weather next spring, and then um, we'll be based here. My partner's on another boat, so we sail in tandem together. But the boats are too small to live on together. So that's top tip there. Two small boats better than one big boat if you're going to be a liverboard. Jasper Wynn, writer in motion for Mehel Morda. Dr. Susan Steele is originally from the fishing port of Castleton Bear in West Cork. She is a marine biologist who formerly headed the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority here and is now executive director of the European Fishing Control Agency in Vigo, Spain. It has chartered three offshore fisheries patrol vessels, which will be brought into service from next month, under a two-year contract with Sentinel Marine in Holland. They were built in 2018, are overall length of 62 metres each, and sail under the Portuguese flag. A new fisheries control method is being introduced, requiring fishing boats to carry remote electronic monitoring systems on board. Pilot schemes are being tried at present. Aboard the inspection vessel Lundy Sentinel, which I already mentioned, Susan Steele and the man who succeeded her as chair of the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority, Pascal Hayes, told me about the system and some introduction difficulties. The landing obligation is a key piece of legislation to make sure that we don't have widespread discarding to ensure sustainability for the future. But it's been a very, very difficult piece of legislation for us to regulate because we're not at sea. We can't see always what's happening. So one of the possible um, solutions in the new control regulation, which should be coming through uh, in its own time, is um, OREM, Remote Electronic Monitoring. And what we have in EFCA is we're working with all of the member states and each of the member states is identifying a minimum of two vessels and they're putting in OREM systems. 
We're then working with the member states. They're looking at how the data comes from the vessel, how this works, how we protect the, the data protection for the crew, and we're testing this. In some member states, we found many vessels are really willing to take it on board because they want to show this is a transparent fishery. We're very, very happy to have this system to show what we've been saying all along, which is that we're compliant. So this, the, these tools will be a method of compliance, and we're looking forward to um, seeing them uh, as the results come out. So many countries have already moved to putting the systems on board. Um, many of the sectors and even our advisory boards are working with their sectors of the industry to put these on board. And again, what we're, we're looking at here is always about driving sustainability for the future. There is no future for fishing industry, for us who enjoy eating seafood, um, if we don't ensure sustainability. And this will be hopefully a tool to help us get there. Pascal, that new project, how is, what's the response to that in Ireland? So, uh, as Susan said, each member state is looking for a minimum of two vessels, Tom. We are indeed looking for two vessels to participate in this. I would encourage the sector to be involved in this at the early stages of it and to have an influence into how this project goes forward. So we're very interested in signing up at least two vessels within the Irish fleet to partake in this pilot project. What sector do they have to come from? Is there a specific sector you're looking for? So we're looking for larger vessels, so over 15 metres in the whitefish part of the fleet if possible, Tom. Is it difficult to get fishermen to do that? Because obviously between the regulations and that the relationships might be difficult to attract somebody? Well, I'm not sure about the relationships, Tom, but it is proving difficult in this case. I think there is somewhat of a suspicion about it. But, I mean, what I would say is that it's really important for our sector to get in at the early stages of this. It's something that is, as Susan has said, is outlined in the regulation that's coming down the road in any case. And we now have an opportunity to shape how our fleet gets involved in that. Of course, there's also the sustainability argument here, Tom, and it can work in the fleet's favour to be able to put a brand on their fish that is fished totally sustainably and that it's done with uh, the REM project in mind. And to my mind, that's the way forward for our fleet, for our fish, for selling our fish and getting a premium price for that product branding them, sustainability, they're the keys you're saying? Absolutely, and the consumer is proving that that's what they're interested in, Tom. We conducted some um, uh, research uh, on consumers, and what it showed was that 92% of the consumers are very interested in marine sustainability and protecting the marine environment, and 80% of those were interested in good control and enforcement of the seafood sector, to provide sustainable seafood and make sure that that's available for generations to come. Finally, Susan, you're based in Vigo now, heading up to EFCA. Three new vessels, there's a major commitment. How's the job going? I ha- oh, Tom, I'm, I am so lucky. First of all, I'm surrounded by so many cork um, boats that are out there sailing. So we've got a good Irish link. And Galicia is Celtic. Um, so it's, it's incredible. Samhain, instead of Halloween, they celebrate. We had Bealtaine in May. Um, so there's an awful lot of the traditions from the piping to the music to the attitude of the people that's very similar to here. So I've landed there. The weather is a little bit better. Um, and it's great coming backwards and forwards between the two. The agency, it's 
fantastic to work with all of the different member states. We have 21 different nationalities working in the agency at the moment. Um, so we've got a, a huge mix from all over Europe. And every single person who's there has the same mission um, that, that is here in Ireland as well, which is the future for the oceans. We want a positive future. And we can see in some of the fisheries where working together is starting to give results. So like the bluefin tuna, we're seeing a recovery of the stocks. There's been sustained campaigns by all of the member states involved, and it's fantastic to see the results. And we've just had now this JDP here, which is running in the northwest waters, where we've been working with the Irish um, control authorities and where it's been uh, fantastic to see the difference that it's making because there are the vast majority of fishermen are compliant and their whole livelihoods and the future of the oceans could be undermined by people who are non-compliant. Susan Steele, Executive Director of the European Fisheries Control Agency and Pascal Hayes, Executive Chairman of the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority. Christmas can be a time of tragedy at sea, but also of amazing survival, as Justin Marr in our Turning of the Tide feature now recalls. This is the story of Patrick Murphy, who was a toddler aboard the MV Innisfallen on the night it sank on December 21, 1940. He was rescued by a man who was never identified. Preceded by a shower of flares, German bombers rain fire and high-explosive bombs in their most savage attack on London. Here again is the blood, the sweat and tears that Nazi warfare brings to the men, women and children of city, town and village. During the height of the German blitz on Britain during World War II, the Irish merchant vessel Innisfallen was sailing the route to Dublin from Liverpool. On the afternoon of the 21st of December 1940, she struck a magnetic mine that had been dropped by the Luftwaffe as she made her way down the River Mersey. She would sink in 45 minutes. At two and a half, obviously, I don't have a detailed awareness of the disaster, but I do have very clear memories, almost like um, disjointed camera slides. They're in sharp focus, but there's no soundtrack at all with them. Patrick Murphy was a toddler, travelling with his mother aboard the Innisfallen on the day she sank. My mother and I were to sail from Liverpool to spend Christmas on the family farm near Monabi, Mallow, County Cork. And one of the bright memories I have of it is hugging my early Christmas present, uh, Danny. It was a huge cowboy doll that my mother had made for me. On board, we were travelling third class and we were sharing a cabin at the stern end of the ship with two women teachers. And as we were passing New Brighton Tower on the south side of the Mersey, we sailed onto a magnetic mine which tore a huge hole in the port bow. So the ship began to go down immediately, nose first. Two men rushed into the cabin to save the women and they pulled my mother out screaming onto the deck to get into the lifeboat. Finally, she got them to understand that her distress was not the explosion, it was because her child was still stuck back there. What had happened was I'd been thrown out of the bunk and was hidden under the debris. But a brave young chap immediately returned to the cabin even though the ship was sinking fast. 
He found me in the dimness and I remember him picking me up and pushing me down inside his greatcoat and only my head was sticking out as he crawled on his hands and knees with me slung beneath him. The lapels on his blue-grey greatcoat were large on each side of me. It's a strange image that, but it's one that stuck with me for 80 years. Patrick never saw the face of his rescuer. And to this day, he has never been able to identify him. During the war, my father tried to find out. And uh, of course, during the war, finding out information on shipping was never very easy. We didn't find anything out at all about him. And then many years later, we realised perhaps we'd been looking in the wrong place because we'd been asking around in Liverpool, but he was an Irish seaman, but we've still not found anything about him at all. Nor, I should say on that, do I know that he was a sailor. He was a young man who was on deck at the same time as my mother was distressed. So he may not have been a sailor. I do wish I knew what he looked like and I wish I knew who his family were and connected with him. It's a missing element in my life and I would think I will never know. But the feeling I have about him is what is important. The memories of that night 80 years ago have stayed with Patrick all his life. A professional painter, Patrick wanted to capture his memories on canvas, but he waited to do so until the 1990s, after his mother had passed away. She lived with us for 23 years, but she never discussed the sinking at all. It was just too painful and we suspect that she lost a baby in it. Um, that she had a miscarriage as a result. So I had to wait until, until my mother had passed away and then I painted it. The man holding me in his coat is the way I remember it. And the background, all the lights, that's the way I remember it. It's not just uh, an illustration, it's, I suppose, an expression of feelings in response mm. to the situation. That man is carrying in his coat, a future generation away from disaster. While I was painting it, it was almost contemplative. And the main feature, although it's my face in the center, the main feature of the painting is the faceless man and his coat with the large lapels. <laughs> strange image that stayed with me, these large lapels. It put me in touch with that man. In some way, you know, I made a, I made a material object which gave me material touch to that man. Each year, Patrick has commemorated the sinking of the Innisfarman, in honour of the brave man who risked everything to save his life, and in memory of the four Irish seamen who lost their lives aboard that day. 
For the 80th anniversary last December, he had planned to lay a wreath on the River Mersey, but COVID restrictions prevented that. However, President Emeritus of the Maritime Institute of Ireland, Richard McCormick, volunteered to lay a wreath for Patrick at the City Quay Seafarers Memorial. I never expected that to happen. That was a fulfilment in its own way of on the 80th anniversary, that on the memorial where Innis Fallon is commemorated, a wreath was laid. The families of those men were real war victims. They actually lost somebody on that ship. So it was beautiful to have that wreath laid by Richard and his wife. Here we have a a tragedy, not the greatest tragedy of the war, but in all of that, there was at least one heroic action. That man's actions were totally selfless. In a very dangerous situation, he knew what he was doing, the risk, but he still took it with no reward for it. That man didn't come forward and say, you know, how great I am, you owe me this, you owe me that. None of that. He just did it and disappeared. It's just how wonderful people can be. It's like the health people who are in working in the COVID pandemic, the selflessness of people who put their lives at risk. There's a lot of uh, empathy, there's a lot of charity, there's a lot of care for other people. And to see that in it, that the sinking was a commercial disaster, political disaster, and a bereavement for many families, but it was still a sign that there are good people. Justin Marr and the amazing Christmas time story of Patrick Murphy and the MV Innisfallen. And so we end the December edition of Maritime Ireland, broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland and on podcast services. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. Your views and opinions are very welcome. Email to Maritime Ireland Radio Show at gmail.com. That's Maritime Ireland Radio Show at gmail.com. Phone or text 0872 555 197. That's 0872 555 197. The program's website is maritimeirelandradioshow.ie and we're also on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the family of the sea. From me, Tom McSweeney, a very happy Christmas to all mariners and all listeners. Until our next programme in January, the usual wish of fair sailing.